worship this morning. It's a fall morning. We've got fall up on the screen. Feels crisp finally. Let's worship this morning. life and let it be all for you and for your glory and like that is our our hope and gathering here this morning right that these Sunday morning gatherings would not be just one-off kind of highs that then we go about our rest of our lives detached from ring about God but our hope and our prayer for these services is that they would be fuel that equip us to make all our life about 
bringing God glory, that our whole life would be about honoring Him, praising Him, and that this gathering this morning would be a way for us to come together and be recharged and rejuvenated, but ultimately that it would be fuel for us to go live lives that are all about God's glory. So we are glad that you're here with us this morning. If you're visiting, my name is Tim. I'm the senior pastor here at Three Lake Evangelical Free Church, and we are glad that you're here with us. Um, we come together and, and worship and make that declaration that our life is all about bringing God glory. A couple of things to bring to your attention. So in a couple of weeks, on Saturday the 24th, we will have our Harvest Festival out at the Russell's Farm. So that will start at 4 o'clock. We'll eat around 5 o'clock. The meat will be provided for that, but we invite you and encourage you to bring a, a salad or a, a dessert to pass if you're coming to that. You also may want to bring your own lawn chair to that, just to have a place to, to sit. Um, yeah, but that'll be in a couple weeks on Saturday the 24th, starting at 4 o'clock, we'll eat at 5. In preparation for that, next Saturday, on the 17th at, at 9 a.m., we invite you to gather out there to help kind of clean up and do a few projects around the farm to get that ready for that. So if you're interested in that, um, yeah, that'll be next Saturday at 9 a.m. A couple other announcements. One is that on October 1st, we'll have a, a membership class here at Three Lake Evangelical Free Church. If you're interested in learning more about what membership means here, or if you're interested in being a member, we'd invite you to be a part of that. You can email the office, you can email me, you can write it on the connect card in the seat back in front of you and drop it in the offering box. However you want to let us know you'd be interested, but we would love to have you be a part of that. And also this morning, we will start our, our Sunday school hour for the year. So that will include both children's Sunday school downstairs and cross-training here in this room following the, the service. So at 1045, we will gather in here for cross-training. Sunday school will start at 1030 downstairs. We would invite you to be a part of that. Obviously, a, a big part of Sunday school and all that takes place in that is Pastor Ian and his work that he does to coordinate all our, our children and youth activities. And today marks five years that Ian has been here at Three Lake Evangelical Free Church. So, yeah. We're, we're thankful for, for Cami as well as part of that. And we're just thankful that you guys are, are here. <laughs> So I'm actually going to invite Ian to come now, and as part of our kind of launching into this school year, they're going to, going to present um, Bibles to our first grade students. I'm going to turn it over to Ian. Hey, Tim. Uh, it's been a blessing to uh, be here, so thank you for letting us be on staff here for five years. Um, if you are a first grader, could I have you guys come up? You get something fun. I don't know if that helps or not, but if you guys want to just sit right here, all right, okay, how do you guys know what's, what's going on, maybe, Kara, maybe, all right, so every year we give out 
Bibles to our first graders. Because as you guys go into Sunday school, we want you guys to have the right tools to succeed in Sunday school. Okay? So I have the Bibles right here. But before I give you the Bibles, I want you to talk about what the Bible is a little bit. Okay? So I want each of you to grab one thing out of this bag. Okay? No looking. Pick one, so. Wisely. All right. You pick something. Whoa, here. Jump in the line there. <laughs> All right. Sophia, what do you got there? A tape measure. A tape measure. A tape measure? Do you think the Bible's kind of like a tape measure? No. Well, I'm going to tell you right now, the Bible is like a tape measure. It tells us how we measure up, okay? So that's how the Bible's like a tape measure. Leona, what do you have? A book. You got a book? Specifically, what kind of book? What do you think? It's not a Bible. That word is manual. This is my minister's service manual. The Bible is kind of like a manual. It tells you kind of the right plays to make and what you can do and what you can't do. All right, Sawyer, what you got, buddy? A flashlight. You got a flashlight. The Bible's like a flashlight. How do you think it is like a flashlight, Sawyer? Can you see in the dark? No. And the Bible's like a flashlight because it shows us things, it clarifies things, and it shows us the right way. All right, Kara, you have maybe the hardest one. What do you think you got there? Class. Flip it around. What do you think that is? You got a sword, right? And it says in Hebrews that the Bible is a sword, keen, sharp, double-edged, and that, that's how we can uh, defend ourselves from the devil. All right, Alice, what do you have? Um, honey Nut Cheerios. You have Honey Nut Cheerios because the word of the Lord is sweet like honey. So, guys, we're excited for you guys to have these Bibles and... You are enjoying yourself way too much. Careful, don't cut yourself. Um, you are enjoying yourself way too much with that. But we want you guys to have these Bibles, and um, we are excited for you. All of the covers are made by Mrs. G, so make sure today that you thank her, all right? So I'm gonna, you guys can take that stuff and put it back in the bag, okay? Um, and I'll give you guys your Bibles, all right? All right. Here's yours, Sawyer. All right, you can put that back in the bag, okay? Sophia, isn't it great? All right, Alice, here's yours. And you can put that back in the bag. Kara. And Leona. So you guys can put the stuff back in the bag, and you can go sit with your parents, okay? All right, I'm going to just pray for Sunday school quick, and then, uh, and then turn it over. Dear Jesus, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to have church and Sunday school and invite the community and say, hey, we are doing this, and we are learning about you, Lord. I ask that you would bless these teachers. Thank you for them so much for 
all the hard work they've put in. We thank you for Deb Canada taking over the Sunday school superintendent role. Uh, it's, it's a lot of work, but she's doing a great job, and we thank you for her, Lord. I ask that you would um, bless these kids that are coming through our doors, coming to our classes, and um, just help us to teach them well, teach them about you well, give them a good foundation, um, so as they get ready to go out into the world that they, they have that, Lord. We ask that you would bless our morning. I ask that you would bless our worship. Help us to worship you well. Um, and as we think about communion, help us to just take this seriously and um, with, with the right attitude, Lord. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and continue to worship with us? In the 
Thank you that is true, that you are forever our, that because of the grace you've shown us in Jesus, we can have confidence that whatever may come, we are yours. You love us, you hold us, you care for us. You have good plans for us. As we walk through trials and difficulties and pain, but what we deeply believe what we sang earlier, that your arms are strong enough to carry us through it all by your grace. Pray each of us here, each of us watching, that we would know that your goodness, your grace is enough to carry us through whatever trials may come, whatever pain we may walk through. You will carry us through it into a glorious future. Pray so in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So on a, a Sunday morning in, in March of 2019, a guy named Ben Kirby, not one of those Kirbys, but another <laughs> Kirby, a guy named Ben Kirby slept in, and he woke up too late to go to church. And so an attempt to, in his own words, purge my deeply embedded Christian guilt, he pulled up some Christian worship songs on, on YouTube. But from there, things didn't go quite as he had maybe planned. Here's how Kirby describes what happened next. He says, I should have been listening to the lyrics, participating in praise and whatnot, but all I could see was the lead singer Yeezy sneakers, worth nearly $1,000. Without my full dose of caffeine, I grew irritated. How could a dude leading a worship service at a church be so blatantly unaware of the optics his shoes portrayed? And so those thoughts and his lack of caffeine led Kirby to to post on Instagram a a picture of this worship leader. And he he, directed it at the church where this guy leads. And he asked a question, he asked a question to that church, how much are you paying your your musicians that they can afford $800 kicks. Let me get on that payroll. He goes on to say about that first post, I wasn't trying to throw the Christian religion into crisis. It was just a poorly informed joke for my 400 followers, delivered with a dose of cynical snark. They usually kind of throw it out there, just kind of throw things that people make on social media all the time. What he didn't foresee is that this post would blow up. Right? It would quickly gain national attention. It would ignite conversations about religious leaders and wealth. It would be an important post. In response to the popularity of that post, Kirby launched another Instagram account called Preachers and Sneakers. And that whole account is just about him taking screenshots of, of pastors and worship leaders looking at their clothes they're wearing, and he posts pictures of the hefty price tags of the shoes and the clothes they're wearing. And so that Instagram account now has 
317,000 followers, and it, it led to a book called Preachers and Sneakers, Authenticity in an Age of For-Profit Faith and Wannabe Celebrities. And so I, those quotes I read earlier are from that book, and it's written in a humorous tone overall. He's very self-deprecating. He's having a lot of fun through it, but it also raises some important questions. And some of the questions that that book addresses are things like, is it okay to amass fame from a religion started by a humble, impoverished rabbi? And do we really believe that divine blessings are typically monetary? Or, is that just a wallpaper to make ourselves feel better about the religious systems we've built? So that question about what is right for the terms of how like, pastors and worship leaders and Christians in general use their wealth. And we can have those discussions, we can debate right, whether it's, it's right or whether it's sinful for a pastor to wear some of the shoes and some of the outfits that Kirby posts on his Instagram account. But we can all agree there's a line somewhere. Like, on the one hand, I'm not up here, and there's not many pastors anywhere who are up in their pulpits wearing like, the cheapest clothes they could find at a thrift store. Like, like there's, no one expects that. But on the other hand, like there's, there was a pastor recently in New York who... He was robbed on live stream during a church service, but he was robbed of a million dollars in jewelry during that service. He had a million dollars of jewelry on him as he preached. And while obviously it's wrong for anyone to rob someone else, like it's also, I think, few of us argue wrong for a pastor to have a million dollars worth of jewelry on him as he preaches. Like, that's clearly some misguided wealth accumulation there. And it's like it's tragically easy to find stories of pastors who have used their, their charisma and their charm and their job title to amass significant wealth and then to flaunt that wealth in, in sinful ways. The one kind of prosperity gospel preacher, the guy who owns two Rolls Royces, he has several multi-million dollar homes, he has a private jet, he, he was one quoted as saying, if I want to believe God for a $65 million plane, you can't stop me. And then went on to buy said $65 million plane. And so there's clearly a way that religious leaders can abuse their position to acquire and flaunt wealth. But what we see at the end of Luke chapter 19 at that this, this phenomenon of, of sinful men making religion big business isn't new. In fact, it, it was live and well even in Jesus' day. We see this in Luke chapter 19, verses 45 through 48. We see religious men making their religion big business. So Jesus had just arrived, arrived in, in Jerusalem, like all the book of Luke had been pointing to Jesus coming to Jerusalem. He finally arrives in Jerusalem where he's been trying to reach for his whole ministry. And like the very first thing that Luke records him doing when he finally gets into Jerusalem is that he, he goes to the temple. He goes to the center of, of worship for Israel. And he rebukes the people who are making religion big business. We're going to read this whole passage together. It's only four verses this morning. I'm going to read the whole thing, then we'll go back through it. 
Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 45. When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, My house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. If they could not find any way to do it, because all the people hung on his words. And so Jesus' fundamental point in all of this is that the temple is for worship. Right? The, the point of that temple being there was for people to come and worship. It was a set-apart place where people could come and they could pray to God and they could worship their God. That's what the temple was there for. Right? But there were people... And not just any people, but religious leaders who had turned the temple away from its intended purpose. And instead they turned it into a place of, of big business. A place where they turned a profit by exploiting others. Right, so in, the, in the temple court that Jesus arrives that day, there's two things taking place. One, that there's a marketplace for all the things that are required for the sacrifice. Right? This is approaching Passover, so people are gathering in Jerusalem where lots of sacrifices take place, and so there's a, there's a market for the things that need to be bought in order to do the sacrifices as prescribed in the law. In fact, the, the historian Josephus once said that at one Passover, over 250,000 lambs were sacrificed during one Passover at the temple. Right? And that's just the lambs, like, Never mind other animals, never mind the wine, never mind the oil and the salt that were all required for these ritual sacrifices. And they all needed to be purchased. And so that's a lot of a buying and selling going on. And, so, and the law of supply and demand meant that like, prices were high, right? sometimes downright exploitative. People were charging whatever they could charge because they knew people needed these things to obey the law. But there's another thing going on as well. And that is that in the temple courts, money was being changed. Money was being exchanged. In day-to-day life, most people would carry Roman currency, in, even in Israel. But the law required that at the temple, at the the temple giving was, had to be given in the Hebrew shekel. And so people needed to convert their money from the Roman currency to the Hebrew shekel. And so the, the money changers knew this, and they, they exploited the situation by charging a high surcharge on the conversion rate from Roman currency to the shekel. And so they're exploiting the people that way as well. And all this buying and selling, all this conversion of currency, all that was overseen by a high priest right, who was lining his pocket through all of this. Josephus, once again, once referred to the high priest as, quote, the great procurer of money. The high priest was using his position, using his influence to become wealthy himself. And so, come Passover, coming to Jerusalem, there's all these people gathering together. They all have these needs. They all need animal for sacrifice. They all need their money converted. And there's great need, but there's very limited places that they can go to get them. And that led to severely inflated prices. And it's like thinking about what this must be like. And the, the closest parallel I could think of 
with like an international airport. Right? Like, like they know they got their people trapped in the airport. Right? And so like you go to the McDonald's in the airport and the burger that's normally four dollars is suddenly ten dollars. Right? The soda that's usually two dollars out of a vending machine is now five dollars. Right? You want to convert your US dollar to Euros, you're gonna pay some hefty fees. Right? They know they have people trapped and they limited supply until they can charge a range of prices. That's, what, that's what's going on here as well. But then Jesus comes in, he sees all this economic activity, and he sees how it's detracted from the very purpose of the temple, which is to be a place of worship. Jesus looked at what's going on, and said, this is not the intended purpose of the temple. Right? And this is not worship. Right? But if you had said that to any Jew who was present in that day, like, if you had said to any Jew, like, don't you see how all this buying and selling is, is disrupting worship? Their response, I think, would have been, like, well, what are you talking about? Because right? this buying and selling only takes place in the outer court, right? in the court of the Gentiles. Our worship takes place in the inner courts. We can go inside where there's not this buying and selling and money changing going on. We can worship in there and not be distracted. I don't see the problem, Jesus. And that's true in part. The market was set up in the court of the the Gentiles. And the court of the Gentiles was the furthest that Gentiles, so non-Jews, could go into the temple complex. Beyond that, you had to be Jewish to go in. And so if the Gentiles wanted to come to the temple and wanted to worship God, like this was the closest they could get. This court of the Gentiles, where the market was set up, is where their worship would have to take place. You can just try to imagine trying to pray and worship in the midst of the chaos that is be going on with the buying and selling of animals and of money changing hands. And so it would be impossible for Gentiles to worship. The Jews, they don't really care. Like, like what do we care if, if Gentiles can worship here? Like, this, the temple is for, for Jews. Like, the temple is our place of worship. Like, what do we care about what the Gentiles feel? Right? And that's where Jesus says, no. Like, the temple is a place for, for God to be worshipped, and it's to be, for Him to be worshipped by all people, not just Jews. And he makes that clear in verse 45 when he says, like, it is written, my house will be a house of prayer. So that statement, my house will be a house of prayer, is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 56, verse 7. And all of Isaiah, chapter 56, is about how anyone is welcome to worship God at his temple. For example, verse 3 of Isaiah 56 says, let no foreigner, right, that is a Gentile, that is a non-Jew, let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And then starting in verse 6, it says, And foreigners, that is Gentiles, who bind themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, to be his servant, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it, and who hold fast to my covenant, to all those foreigners, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. 
their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house, this is what Jesus is quoting right here, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. So Jesus doesn't say those last words, for all nations, but he expects that his hearers would understand the context and know that those words come next, that his house is a house of prayer, not just for the Jews, but for all people. So the temple is intended to be a house of prayer for, for all people. It's going to be a place of worship for all people, not just Jews. And then Jesus shows up there to, there to market in the midst of this worship center, making worship in impossible. And that's why Jesus is so upset. The activities taking place were preventing people from worshiping. The activities that are taking place are preventing the temple from achieving its purpose. One commentator put it this way. By buying and selling in the outer court, the money changers were effectively excluding Gentiles from the worship of God. And thus, they were failing to fulfill their mission to the world. This is what made Jesus so angry. It was not simply what the people were doing, all the buying and selling. It was also what they were not doing, praying to God or reaching the lost. The greed of the, of the money changers and those who were selling was crippling the worship of those who came to the temple. And Jesus makes it clear right, that while his, his main concern was that these activities were getting in the way of worship, it was also clear that like, what they were doing in and of itself was wrong. He says, My house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Which that den of robbers is a quotation from Jeremiah 7.11. So these people who are selling money and selling and buying and selling animals and changing money, like they were all, Jesus said, robbers. They were thieves. They were stealing from those around them. In the name of greed, they were charging extortionary prices in order to line their pockets and steal from the people in need. That, that greed was crippling worship. It was crippling worship for two people, or two groups. It was crippling worship for, for the Gentiles who came to the temple only to find their place of worship turned into a market. Like, that certainly crippled their worship. But the greed of the, the money changers and the sellers, it also crippled their own ability to worship. Their hearts were so fixed on maximizing profit and on leveraging their position that they, they had no room left to worry about prayer or worshiping and honoring God in their own lives. They were so fixed on greed and on profit that they weren't able to worship themselves. And both those dangers are present for us in our own lives as well. I think it's interesting, right, when you think about the temple in the Old Testament, and then try to think about, like, what is the equivalent of the temple today? I think the natural place for our minds to jump is to, like, the church. So the temple is the place where, the, where worship took place in the Old Testament, and now the church is the place where worship takes place in the New Testament. And there's, there's a piece of truth to that. But when you read through the New Testament and you look for things that are called the temple, 
It's not the church. Instead, what we see compared to the temple is not the church building, but each individual believer. Paul said this several times in his letter to the his first letter to the Corinthians. In First Corinthians three, he says, "Do you not know that you are a temple of God, that the Holy Spirit dwells in you?" And in chapter six, he says, "Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God?" To the temple, the, the key fundamental truth about the temple is that it was the place where God dwelt with his people. It was the place where God was specially present on earth in a unique way. That was the function of the temple in the Old Testament. But then Jesus comes on the scene, and John tells us in chapter 1 that the Word, that is Jesus, was God, and that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So it shifted where God dwelt among us from the temple to the person of Jesus. So in Jesus' lifetime, the place where God dwelt with his people was in the person of Jesus. But then Jesus ascends into heaven. He promises that when he ascends, he will send another in his place. And that other is the Holy Spirit. So when we trust, we follow Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes and He dwells in us. He lives in each one of us who have trusted in Jesus. The power of God is living in all who have trusted Jesus. And that presence of God in us through the Holy Spirit makes us the temple of God. The Holy Spirit of God dwells in us. It is the place where God dwells now. So therefore, if the temple place, the temple function is to be a place of worship, then your job, your function, your place as a temple of God is to be a place of prayer and worship. That's your first and foremost job. As a temple of God, you are to be about worshiping God. So your life should be about. In John chapter 4, there's a conversation between Jesus and a, a Samaritan woman, and they're, they're discussing the proper place to worship God. They're, arguing, like, they're debating, like, whether it's at Jerusalem, at the temple, or it's where the Samaritans worship. That conversation ends with Jesus saying, A time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit. And in truth, these are the kind of worshipers that the Father seeks. The place of worship no longer ultimately matters. Worship doesn't revolve around the temple anymore because the temple in Jerusalem is no longer where God dwells with His people. He dwells in His people through the Holy Spirit and enables them to, to worship Him in spirit and in truth. And so we, each of us who have trusted in Jesus, is the new temple. We are the new center of worship. Just if the temple was built as a place for worship for all people, the temple was a place where even those outside the community of God could come to experience God. So that each of us, as a temple, 
with God's Spirit dwelling in us, we now have that same charge. Like, the Holy Spirit dwells in us. And so people should look at us, all people, and be able to see the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. Like, your life should be a means of drawing people to God. So the question is, if that's our call, to be a place where all people can see and feel the presence of God, not just religious insiders, but all people can see and feel the presence of God in us. That's our call. The question is, do we participate in activities, even if they're religious-looking activities, that inhibit this function of God's presence in you? Does your life draw people towards God or push people away from God? Or does your, your greed right, to cause you to act in ways that keep people away from God instead of drawing people to God? Is your life like, marked by a, by a greed or a materialism that, that cripples your own ability to worship? Or that cripples the ability of those around you to worship? Like, do you have greed or materialism in your heart that, that causes you to make decisions that are, that are motivated more by a desire to acquire wealth than by a desire to worship God? Or does that materialism and greed does it cause you to, to neglect financial giving as part of your worship? I feel like if you really stop and you really examine your heart, not just do you know the right answer, but if you examine your heart, really ask yourself honestly, what matters more to me? My own prosperity, my own wealth, or worship? That's the question that these Jews in the passage faced, and they clearly chose their own prosperity over worship. It's a warning for us not to make the same mistake, right? That our worship matter far more than any material things. And you may hear that, you may think about that, and you may wonder like, well, like what's the big deal? Like sure, maybe I have a little greed in my life, maybe I have can be a little materialistic, right? but like surely there's worst thing to be guilty of. That's not that big a deal. But we see in in this passage and in the rest of the New Testament that greed is one of the fundamental things that that cripples worship. And crippled worship then leads to more and more sin. So after Jesus drives out the sellers, he drives out the money changers, we read in verse 47, Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. And because the chief priests, because the teachers of the law, because they had this crippled and, and misplaced worship, they eventually came to the point where they were ready to kill Jesus. Now, of course, like they, had, they had more reasons for wanting to kill Jesus than just the cleansing of the temple. 
Right? But all of their reasons for wanting to kill Jesus were rooted, first and foremost, in misplaced worship. Whether it's because they worship money and wealth, because they worship their own power and status, they were more concerned with their own affairs, their own earthly well-being than the things of God. And it caused them to reach a point where they were willing to kill the Son of God. And it's clear throughout the Bible right, that, that one of the great causes for our priorities, our worship getting twisted, is greed and an excessive love of money. Paul says, for example, in 1 Timothy, that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. A love of money is a a stepping stone, Paul said, that leads to all other kinds of evil. So here's my encouragement, my my hope for you. Guard yourself against that kind of greed. You don't know where it will lead. That's how sin in general works. It gets progressively worse, little by little, step by step. It wormed our way into our lives, little by little, one step at a time. The chief priest, the teacher of the law, didn't wake up one day. They didn't go from from being fully invested in worship one day to suddenly being, you know what I want to do today? I want to kill the Son of God. That, that switch didn't happen overnight. They got to the point of wanting to kill the Son of God because their crippled worship led to one little sin, which led to another little sin, and another little sin, and it built up until they reached the point that it seemed like killing Jesus was a rational decision. That's how sin works. It's like, look, I don't know each of your stories. I don't know what sins you may be fighting in your own life or not on what might be working at you. You know, where you may be struggling to be obedient. Here's what I know. If we don't put sin to death, if we don't make our life about worshiping the one true God, over time that sin, if it's unaddressed, will grow. And it will morph into more and more egregious sins. And you won't even see it. Well, one sin leads to another sin, and it all looks rational. But the sin that lives in you right now, whatever it may be, it will not be content to stay at the same level. The Bible constantly calls sin like yeast, with the desire to grow and consume and all of you. The sin needs to be rooted out and put to death. And the way that happens, right? and I think here's where we often go, okay, like, like all of us would agree, like, yeah, we don't want sin in our lives. And so our answer often is, right, I'm going to buckle down real hard and I'm going to fight this sin on my own. I'm going to beat it. What we see in this passage is that the way we beat sin, the way we defeat sin, is not by trying after hard to stop sinning. The way we defeat sin is by 
making sure our life is about worship. And our worship is enabled by listening to Jesus. In verse 48 of today's passage, we saw that the leader wanted to kill Jesus. But then verse 48 says, if they could not find a way to do it, why? Because the people hung on his word. The people were still obedient to Jesus. The people still wanted to hear Jesus. What a, what a juxtaposition that is. Right? The leaders wanted to kill Jesus, but the, but the people wouldn't let them because they were hanging on the word of Jesus. Because they were, they were hanging on the word of Jesus that enabled them to, to see Jesus rightly and to not fall into the trap that the Jewish leaders had fallen into. And so here's the ultimate question. Are you hanging on the word of Jesus? That's what he has to say to us in this book. That it inform your life. That guide how you live your life. You live your life the way you see fit and Jesus comes in on the side when it's convenient. Are you hanging on the word of Jesus? Is your life fueled by, motivated by who Jesus is and, and what he says? Or is your life fueled by fulfilling your own selfish motives and desires? You can live a life that's fueled by greed, fueled by Selfish motives. We can live a life that hangs on the words of Jesus. We are made to worship. We will all worship something. We must choose what we will worship. We can worship power. We can worship money. We can worship materialism and greed. We can worship fame and status. We can worship all kinds of things that will not benefit us in the end. Or... We can worship Jesus. And that's the choice that we'll have to make. Will you chase after, after wealth? Will you chase after lining your own pockets? Or will you chase after Jesus? You may, you may hear that. You may examine your life now. You may think about choices you've made in the past and if you're like me, like you're painfully aware of all the times you've failed. All the times that the things of this world have seemed more valuable to me than Jesus. The times that I've made wrong choices, that I've chosen money or status or something else above Jesus. You may be painfully aware of all the times you've failed. But the the reason what Jesus does matters so much is that He came to forgive us of all those times we fail. That He came, that He was the one who gave up the riches, the glories of heaven. He modeled for us what it looks like to put those aside. He gave up the glories of heaven. He came to earth to live among us sinful, broken humans. Even though we didn't deserve it, even though we didn't even want Him, He came to us. He gave up the glories of heaven. came to earth. He lived a sinless life and yet was still put to death 
Antichrist. Eventually, these religious leaders would get their way. They would kill Jesus. But because he was sinless, that death couldn't hold him. And he rose from the dead on the third day. And in dying for us, he, he died in our place for all those who trust in him. He died in our place for our sins. He died in our place for all the time. We failed to worship him rightly. And if we, we believe in him, we trust in him, then that frees us not to dwell on and rue all the times we've failed in the past, but it frees us to move forward. Committing ourselves to being about worshiping Jesus. Knowing that, yes, we will fail again in the future, but those sins are already paid for by what Jesus did on the cross. If you're here and you've never trusted Jesus, you've been chasing after materialism, you've been chasing after your own self-interest, you've been chasing after something else. You've never trusted Jesus. I just urge you, like, Jesus the only thing worth our worship. So trust Him, believe in Him, worship Him. And in doing so, like, your sins are forgiven. All the times you've failed in the past are forgotten. You're free to live the life He has called you to live. And those who are here who have already trusted Jesus, let us live lives that are about worship. Right? That worship is not something we do when we come together on Sunday morning only. But that our, our lives are lives of worship because we are temples of the Holy Spirit. God dwells in us. Every step we take out in the world, we are temples of God. We are places where worship takes place every second of every day. So let us live like we believe that. Let us live like we believe that the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead actually lives in us. Like, the Bible said that, and like, I think I don't live in that reality very well. Like, the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you through the Holy Spirit. If you trust Jesus, you believe in Jesus, the Holy Spirit dwells in you, like, it lives in you. Like that power lives in you. Like what our lives reflect that reality. That God's Spirit dwells in us. That we are temples of God. And sometimes, because like, we're forgetful people, we, we need to be reminded. And then in communion... God gives us a, a tangible way to remind ourselves of all that He's done for us in Jesus, to remind us that His Spirit dwells in us because of what Jesus did. The last month we started you know, taking communion a little bit different than we have been recently. So, up here at the two tables, we have juice and we have bread. So in a few minutes, I'm going to invite you to come. You'll come up these side aisles, and then 
go back to either the middle aisle or on the outside. There's a few people who it'll be a little bit of a challenge. You have to like kind of walk by, side by side a little bit closely. You know, it's not perfect traffic flow. Right? One of the great things about doing communion this way is that it reminds us that we are the body of Christ, that we are united together through Jesus. And so like that little awkward closeness right, can just be a little reminder that you are a body of Christ with the people gathered around you. So I invite you to come in just a minute. If you are unable to, or be more comfortable not getting out of your seat, Dave Kirby in the back will have a tray that he will gladly bring you the communion elements. If you would prefer either self-contained elements, either for sanitary reasons or for gluten-free, that are gluten-free, self-contained um, packages up uh, here as well. You're welcome to to take part in those. This is the time that we can come together. We can remind ourselves of all that Jesus has done for us. And so I invite you to come, like, grab your elements, return to your seat, and then I'll come back up here in a few minutes. We will partake together. Let's pray first. Father God, we, we thank you for this. Time to gather together as your people. People you have made to worship you and to bring you glory. People who have been saved by Jesus. So we may go out and we can draw other people to yourself. Father, when people look at us, And see your presence in us. People be moved to worship because they see you in us. Not worshiping us, but worshiping you. Father, we thank you for all that Jesus has done for us. Thank you that he came and he died in our place. That our failures that all the times we worship something besides you may be forgiven. Thank you, Jesus, died in our place to forgive us our sins. And you gave us this meal, this communion time, as a way to come together to remind ourselves that we are one body with Christ as our head, to remind ourselves that your body was broken, your blood poured out for us. But Father, would we not take these elements lightly? Would we not take them because it's the second Sunday of the month? But would we take them desirous to remember and remind ourselves of all that you've done for us to forgive us? of our sins. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
after supper, you took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Partake. Father, we thank you for this way that you've given us to remember Jesus and all that he has done for us. And in response to all that Jesus has done for us, Father, would you teach us, would you show us how to live lives that are day by day, step by step, all about worshiping Him. In our lives as a temple to the Holy Spirit, would they be about worship, about all else? Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a reminder that Sunday school will start this morning downstairs and that cross training will start in here at 1045 we'll discuss the sermon together and ask, answer any questions you may have about the sermon as we go from here one other thing um, sorry. so communion Sunday also you take a special benevolent offering as part of our communion Sunday throughout the door on your way out there will be people holding trays those will be four dedicated benevolent offering to meet the needs that we may become aware of in our either our church family or in our community. Regular tithes and offerings, if you want to give to those, it's one of the boxes that are mounted on the back wall. But you go from here. Would you go living a life that is all about worshiping God? You are dismissed.
spring 